That was me. Good morning, church. Um, Jeff didn't say this, but Miss Wanda, who was just pictured there, is it's, she's in the 96, 97 age range. So she's the oldest member in our church. One of the reasons he especially lifted her up in prayer is because she's been fighting an infection at her age that's, that's hard. Uh, so when we were visiting with her, she hasn't been able to come to church. And she said, but pastor, we've been watching the live stream. We've been listening to the services. And, I, and we just love the series on heaven. I said, well, don't like it too much. You know, you know, and she says, in the Lord's time, I'll go home. But, but we have had a, a great summer of studying God's word on the subject of heaven. And if this is your first time with us today, this is our last sermon on heaven. Not forever, but for the series. And um, I can recall once going to a conference and listening to John Piper preach. And he got up and he said, I've got 15 points for you today. And I went, whoa, how's he going to get to 15 points? But he did. And it's kind of in that vein that I was thinking today, how are we going to finish the series? The way we're going to finish the series is I'm going to answer a lot of questions that people have about heaven. Through the summer, some of these questions were asked. And I'm not able to spend an entire sermon on all of these. It'd be too long of a series. So I'm going to answer questions about heaven, answering questions about heaven. I think that's the way I have it. And we, be, we, we can't spend a lot of time on all of them. So I'll spend more time on some and, and shorter on others. But it will lead us here down towards the end of our um, series on heaven. So question number one about heaven. Aren't there better things to study. I've been asked this because just right there, <clears throat> does it matter really if you're premillennial, amillennial, postmillennial? The thing about end time study in heaven is there's a lot of content in the Bible about it. And sometimes it's confusing. And sometimes you feel like, why devote so much time to something? I mean, what really matters is Jesus is coming back, right? And I get asked this question, why would we spend time on this? And so I wanted to share with you, actually, this is a verse I go to when this question is asked about anything in the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God, some translations, given by inspiration of God, and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness, that the man of God may be competent, equipped for every good work. That means... Every aspect of the scripture that comes from God is profitable. Now, all scripture is profitable, but all scripture may not be equally applicable to different seasons of your life. Sometimes I read through uh, Leviticus, and I'm not sure it's applying to me right in that moment, but all scripture is profitable, which means that what the Bible has to say is it comes from God about heaven in the end times, can be used, not just for teaching, instruction, but reproof to correct error, like we saw last week in what was being uh, taught about when Christ would return, and Paul was correcting it, training and righteousness to train myself to live with, with a, a love of, the, of his appearing, um, my hope is there, that we can be competent, equipped for every good work. Now, Daniel Jeremiah wrote this. He said, if you remove 
all the information about the future from the Bible, and you remove about one-fourth of the book. In other words, there's a lot of content in the Bible about the future. If you take it out, you've got a lot missing, which means there's a lot of content in the Bible pertaining to the future that is profitable. That's why we study it. And yes, sometimes Christians have a different thought about particular aspects. But as I said last week, we all who are followers of Christ believe in the resurrection and His return. Now, I just wanted to kind of lay that as the foundation for the first question. Why study this? Because it's profitable. But number two, what's not in eternity? When we look at everything in the world and we think about when we get to heaven, when we get to the new earth, when we get to eternity, what are there, what is in earth now that's not going to be there? Now, there are specifically some things that the Bible says will not be in eternity. And if you, I'm not going to give you all the verses. We'll walk through a few. But Matthew 22, Jesus has asked this question about a woman who's had a whole bunch of husbands because they kept dying. And then when she gets to heaven, which one will she be married to? And his answer is, well, for in the resurrection, he actually he says none of them. For in the resurrection, they shall neither marry nor be married, but shall be as the angels of God in heaven. Meaning in heaven, we don't have spousal marriage like we do here on earth. So I'm just trying to show you that there are some things that will be different. Revelation 21 says, He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, as in sorrow, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he's specifically telling you, these things will not be in eternity. There will not be death there will not be crying or pain in the way that we've known them here on this earth. Revelation 21, And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. And there will be no light there. Nothing unclean will ever, will ever enter it. I don't think I got that right. I'm going to have to just look at that. Revelation 23, 27. There's a typo there. And there will be no night there. I have no light there, doesn't it? That doesn't make sense. There will be no night there. Okay? I just, it contradicts itself. Do you see that? <laughs> there will be no night there. You know, I missed that in the first service and no one brought that up. I mean, they really weren't paying attention. Who, <laughs> nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's book of life. Okay? So you can see right there, he's saying there's no night, okay? No darkness in the city in that way. So what's not in eternity? I just kind of compiled a little list here. Well, nothing unclean. He said that nothing unclean enters the city. So anything that we would associate with, with of a sinful nature is not there. And the repercussions of that. Okay, you have a hatred in your heart, not going to be there, neither will the things that come from that, argumentation or all the way up to murder, not going to be there. Okay, anything unclean, not there. No darkness, that means other things, you know, I told the kids that were sitting in the first service, I don't know how you're going to play hide and seek in the dark, in, the, in eternity, because it's light, but for us, how do we have a moonlight 
walk on the beach with our spouse. There, it's light. Uh, maybe the moon's still there, but, you could, but, but it's not dark. Okay? No warfare. Now, I didn't put that verse up there. That was from an earlier sermon in the, in the, in the summer where the Bible talks about how God will repurpose things like spears are made into plowshares, like you take things that were meant for war, things that were meant to be used in a way that would be sinful are not maybe totally eradicated, but repurposed. We use it in a different way. Okay, I put here no firearms, question mark? I don't know, because there's no, there's no warfare. There'll be no wars. I kind of like shooting as a sportsman. I have some rifles, and sometimes I talk about that. I like to go shooting. But there's no guns. Don't tell the Democrats that. Sorry, bad joke. Soon said that. But uh, no, no death. Sorry, no steakhouses. Sorry. I thought more of you men would really groan at that one, but I guess not. Now, this is what I mean by that. We know there's eating because it, we see that there's eating, but there's no death. So we're not going to be eating things that are caused as a result of death. Now think about that. Well, as a pastor, does that mean we're all going to be vegetarians? Well, maybe. Some people say, what about manna, you know, in the Old Testament? Was that kind of a heavenly meat? People have different, some people say, well, it was, bread. It was heavenly bread. They have different thoughts about that. But I know there's no death, okay? So we see that. There's no sorrow. So there's no counseling. No, we're, we, we live in a, a culture that's very uh, consumed with mental health. We won't have that. We won't have to deal with bad mental health. We won't have prescription meds for these things. There's no sorrow, um, no pain in that way. And there's no marriage, as he said. There's no marriage in the way that we have it now, no procreation. He says we are as the angels are. When you do a study on angels, there's one of the things that you learn about angels is that the, the number of angels is fixed. They do not procreate and they do not die. Whatever number God made in the beginning is the same number there is today. Now, some of them have fallen. Some of them are put in pits. We do see that they fight, but, but they, they don't have a body like us where they would be separated that they call death like that. So, but uh, that was a little tangent there, but there, there's no marriage in heaven. So what's not in eternity? Now, that leads me to the next question, number three. Well, what about our memories? What about our memories? Do we lose our memories? If there's no sorrow, then am I going to have memory of things that might make me sorrowful? Do you see that? that? That's the way you would frame that question. Well, let me read to you a couple verses to answer this. We'll go to, uh, for, well, first of all, let me quote Randy Alcorn from his book on heaven. He says, the law of continuity requires that we will remember our past lives. Heaven cleanses our slate of sin and error, but it doesn't erase our memory of it. You say, well, how can that be if I can remember it? Well, this, first of all, imagine um, <clears throat> Christ in his resurrected body. What did he have on his hands? Scars. If he has scars there, you have to have a memory then of how he got those scars. We don't completely lose our memory in that way, okay? Well, then how does that work, Pastor? Well, Isaiah 65 says, for the past troubles will be forgotten. The past troubles will be forgotten, hidden from my eyes. 
For behold, I create new heavens and a new earth, and the former shall not be remembered, but not come to mind. It doesn't come to mind. The troubles associated with sin, the, the, the sorrow that you might derive out of that memory, that's what changes. I see the scars, but what is derived out of seeing the scars on his hands, they don't bring about the kind of sorrow that we might think they bring about something else. And it's not just the scars. You see in Revelation, it says that there are going to be memorials set up to remind you of the 12 tribes, of the apostles, in the same way that you might go to New York and see the twin, the twin towers are knocked down. Now they've got a memorial there for that. And when you see the memorial, it reminds you of what happened. Okay? And when that happens, I've heard, I haven't been there, but if you see it, that it's powerful. It draws out from you emotion. But in the future, in eternity, whatever is there, those memorials, the scars, what they draw out of you, what's derived, is not a kind of sorrow that we would have today because it says this, there is no sorrow. It must derive something else. I'm quoting Boudreaux. He says, For the sins which so often made us tremble are washed away in the blood of Jesus and are therefore no longer a source of trouble. The remembrance of them rather intensifies our love for the God of mercy and therefore increases our happiness. To see the scars draws some other kind of emotion, a, a, a gratefulness, a thankfulness, a joy for God's mercy that Christ went through that to, to give us what we have there in that moment. It brings about something else. Now, I'll tie some of these together as we go along, but I want to move to question four. How much then of our world today will we find in eternity? Now, I want to read you this verse. This comes out of Revelation right at the end. It says, and we, we read this earlier where it was talking about <clears throat> light and dark, but by its light, excuse me, by its light will the nations walk and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it and its gates will never be shut by day. They will bring into it the glory and honor of the nations. Do you catch something there? Look at a couple of the words that are there that might surprise you. Kings and nations. Well, pastor, this is the very end. I thought all the nations were gone. Now we're going into eternity. And he's talking about the great city, the eternal city. And there's that gate. It says the gates will never be shut. People will go in and out of them. Who? Kings. And the nations will bring glory into that. The picture that you get from the Bible is that people will bring into and to honor the king of the city aspects of who they are as a people and their culture. You can go back into the Old Testament. It says the shipbuilders, the, the builders of Tarshish will come and they will bring things and they will bring them into the city. And what am I talking about here is culture. Now, if you are here long enough, you'll hear me talk about this every now and then, that the gospel does not eradicate culture. It does not go into every culture and then somehow homogenize it, homogenize it all into every culture looks the same. It doesn't do that. The gospel only changes aspects of culture that are unholy. If I go into a culture and there's a tribe, and in their culture a man can marry as many women as he wants, 
was the gospel comes in. I'm a missionary, and, the, and it, it breaks into that culture, and over time it changes that culture. What you would find is that culture is that men would stop living that way, and they would become faithful to only one woman and have one wife. Why? Because the gospel would shape that about marriage. It changes the parts of culture that don't reflect Christianity, but it doesn't eradicate it. And when we go into the new eternity, it's not as if culture is suddenly gone. We, we read that standing before the throne was every tribe and every nation, every tongue. I already talked about how diverse the people will be of heaven. And it doesn't mean that the diversity of those people coming in, somehow we all are just the same culture. We bring with us or we go out into the new earth. Have dominion, the Bible says. We go out and we make something of what it is that God gives us. And culture will be made. That great city, the eternal city. Think about the culture of a city, right? Food. Cities have food. Places to go get food. Music. There's work. There's people busy. People humming around. It's busy. And when we talked about the eternal city, we, we talked about those things. I'm taking you back to an earlier sermon. That the eternal city will display those things. You, it, it doesn't fit to think of it as a city in some other capacity. That's what the word means. We already know, like in cities, there are, there's parks where people go for, to gather for recreation. Other places they go to gather in the eternal city, we have that. There's the, the rivers flowing with the trees, trees alongside of it. We go there. There's places to go where you can pick that and eat, just like in cities today. We will be creating and making and displaying. There will be music. People will write new music. And what other things? There were feasts. The Bible's full of, of celebrations like that that will exist in the future, in the new eternity. And then we go out into that new earth, traveling and exploring. I told you, oh, I can't wait. What will that earth be like? I mean, there's so many places on this earth I want to visit I'm never going to get to. But to have all eternity? And just imagine Adam in the garden. And Adam is walking down this trail, and he goes, and he circles around, and he walks this way, and he comes around, and he's checking everything out. He's gone. Half a day, he's gone. He comes back to where he started. That's a hike. That's exploring. And as he's walking along, he sees this kind of sloped cliff line. He says, I want to go up there to see that and look off that ridge. He climbs up. That's climbing. You see that? There's a lot about our world today that will be in the new eternity. Someone asked, what about sports? Well, I don't know. I can't imagine what sports would be like without sin nature. They throw, a, they throw a ball. Strike. Yeah, that was a strike. Both guys. Yep, definitely a strike. Can't argue that. No. Nobody's kicking the dirt on the umpire. I don't know. I know that there's a lot about this world that will be in the eternity, more than you might think. C.S. Lewis, when he wrote his books, uh, The Chronicles of Narnia, you get to the last book, it's called The Last Battle. And in that, at the very end, 
All the characters throughout all the books in the series, they enter into what's called Aslan's land. Aslan is the figure in the books that is symbolic of God the Father or Christ. And there's this interesting thing that's said. You've read all these books, all the adventures, all the stories, and you get, finally they're there at the end. They're going into what is symbolic of heaven. And one of the characters says this. It's not that different than the world we were in. It's just so much more wonderful and better. You take all of the things about the world that sin destroys. There's a lot of good things. Many of those good things you will find in new eternity because it's part of culture, it's part of people, it's part of what we make and do. How much of our world will we find in eternity? More than we might think. Question number five. How does resurrection work if I am cremated? And this is a question that I get asked. And I'm just going to tell you that you might get a different answer when you ask pastors this, I grew up in the Midwest, and what I was taught was that, uh, at least in the churches, I, the circles that I ran in, was that cremation was a practice that came out of pagan societies, the Vikings, the barbarians. God's people in the Bible buried in tombs and caves and put them in the dirt. That's what they did. That's what we should do. <clears throat> But there was a lot about Israel's culture that they did that we do not do. So it can't just be that. And the thought that there has to be those bones that come up that you can put the, the reconstituted body on. Well, there are saints that died two, 3,000 years ago that those bones are dust. So... What's the answer? And I, I think the way that I, I answer this is, is that I say it's a matter of the conscience. Paul talks in a couple places in Romans and in Corinthians where he talks about aspects of culture where two Christians might have a different thought about eating or about what day they, they, they consider holy. And he gives really great instruction on that. And let me just give you some verses. Let me tie the verses together. Here's the first one. Luke 1.37, nothing is impossible for God. Whether you got a body or you got ashes, God knows where every molecule is that made up who you were. He made Adam from dirt. He can raise out of ashes a new you. Nothing is impossible with God. Romans 14, Paul, on the instruction, uh, instructing Christians on matters of the conscience where they might have a different thought, he says to them, if you have doubts, then it's not from faith. And he instructs Christians, don't practice something if you have doubts about it, because it's not from faith. And if it's not from faith, then it could be sin that's leading you into it. I'm doing it because of the pressure that other people are telling me. James 1.5 says, if anyone asks of wisdom, he will give it. Ask for wisdom in making a decision. But I tend to try to be gracious on this particular question because Christians have different thoughts on it. And I know Christians who have said to me, we cannot afford what it costs to do a funeral. And our family found that. that we already did it. It was in the past. And so I just tend to be gracious on that. And uh, the thing I want to to say about it is we should be gracious, but 
Don't ever think that somehow it creates some type of context that makes it difficult for God to make a resurrection happen. <laughs> Question number six, what happens to children when they die? You can't get to heaven unless you put your faith in Jesus Christ, right? Well, what about a child who never had that opportunity and then they die? Is that what happens to them? Is that fair then? They didn't put their faith in Christ. Do they not get to go to heaven? That's a question that's commonly asked. Now, what I'm going to do to answer this is I'm going to come at it from three different ways and put them together to say, here's how I answer the question. The first is I go, I go to the Bible and say, well, what do we see in terms of God's character towards children? God views children as innocent. Let me give you three examples. Deuteronomy 1.39 is when Israel has gone through the wilderness and they're about to go into the promised land. It's like they're standing on the edge. They're going to go into that promised land. But if you know the story, the people rebel. They, they sin. They do something they're not supposed to. And God comes and he judges them. All of you, the people, you have rebelled against me. And my judgment is you are not going into the promised land. You're going to wander in the desert for 40 years until you all die. But the, the generation below you, the kids they will inherit. They get to go in. He, re he refers to them as being innocent in that context. Another example is the book of Jonah, where Jonah is sent to the city of Nineveh. And in that story, they, it's a, a vile city. They're, 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 it needs revival. Jonah preaches, and then they repent. And then Jonah's upset. Jonah says, Aren't you going to destroy them? You told me you're going to. I want to see some, some Sodom and Gomorrah, fire, brimstone. Come on. And he's upset about it. He's sitting up on the hill. If you know the story about Jonah. And God comes down and has this interaction with him. And one of the things he says in that interaction is the last verse in the book. And why he's not going to give judgment. And one of the things he says, what about the 120,000 souls that don't know their left from their right? That there are 120, they're so, he's referring to babies, they don't even know they're left from the right. And he's, that's a reason. He sees that in the city. Now, some of the prophets, like Jeremiah, I gave you one verse, Jeremiah 19. He's talking about a culture that sacrifices babies, and the way he refers to the babies is innocence. The innocence. You're sacrificing the innocent. So just seeing the character of God there on that, how he views children. Now, let me go to the opposite of that. Do you know what, do you know what you, the character of God you see towards grown people old enough to make a decision about how to live their life? Well, there's two lists, Galatians 5. I put them up there, Revelation 21. I'll read to you Revelation 21. It's a shorter list than the Galatians one. But he says this, <clears throat> um, but... As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, the sorcerers, the idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Now, in the Galatians passage, it uses a lot of the same descriptions, but it also uses language that says that practice these things. And the type of verbs that it uses are people, it's, it's a, a continuation in their life. So some, I point that out because sometimes you might have someone sitting here 
and they've committed adultery. And you read that. Oh, adulterers can't get into heaven. They're going to burn in hell. If you practice that and don't turn from that, he's saying people who willfully choose a lifestyle, and then he lists these kinds of lifestyles. It's a choice that they make. God's judgment is based upon people who can make a choice about those things. Ezekiel 18 there says, the soul that sins will be judged. Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. A wage is something you earn, a, a conscious decision about sin. So we're seeing this. What are we seeing? God views children, innocence. He, he's looking at people old enough to make decisions, and if their choice is to choose sinful lifestyles, he judges that. Let me show you the last one. Actually, let me read you what John MacArthur says. Little children have no record of unbelief or evil works, and therefore there is no basis for their deserving an eternity apart from God. They are graciously and sovereignly saved by God as part of the atoning work of Jesus Christ. So the view that I have as a pastor, and most pastors do, is that when a little baby dies that is not old enough to make a decision, that they are called up to be with God. Now, there's one more example I want to give you. It comes from uh, 2 Samuel. It's from King David. If you know the story of David, David... uh, commits adultery by taking Bathsheba. He sees her. He wants her. He has her husband killed. So he, he murders, then he commits adultery. But then a prophet comes, and a prophet reveals to him that God knows this, and he breaks down, and he repents. He gets his life right, but from that sinful act, Bathsheba has a baby. He impregnates her. And now when the time comes, she gives birth the, the, the little infant is not well, and it's going to die. Now, the scenario is this. David rips his cloak off. He's, he is not, don't give me any food. I'm not taking a bath. I am, he is on his face praying, prostrate before God. Please save the baby. Please save the baby. Please save the baby. And now, when the servant's come. They want, they want their king to eat. They don't like to see the disposition he's in. They begin to talk, but news comes. The baby has died. And then they begin to discuss amongst themselves. Well, should we tell the king? Oh, no, don't tell him. Look at the state he's in now, just knowing it might die. When he finds out that the baby actually died, he might kill himself. Don't tell him. And as they're having the discussion, the Bible says that David hears it and perceives what has happened. And he says, has the baby died? Yes, king, the baby's died. Go get me some food. I want to take a bath. And it stuns the servants. Wait a minute. Aren't you going to keep praying for the baby? And here's his response. No. This is not verbatim. But no. Why? Because the baby cannot come back to me. What would my prayers do? I, I can't bring the baby back. And then he says this, the baby will not come to me, but I can go to him. And that's a powerful statement. David believed that when he died, he would go to where that baby was. He would go to him. And you just take these three things together, and it gives me 
how I respond to that question, what happens to babies? I believe that God calls them up to Him, and they are with Him in heaven. Question number seven. <clears throat> Won't basically good people go to heaven? Now, I worded it that way on purpose. Won't basically good, because everybody believes they're basically good. That's why I worded it that way. And this is a common interaction I have. You know, we start talking to someone. Well, what do you believe about? Well, I don't go to church. Well, what do you believe about the afterlife? Well, you know, I believe there's a God and there's a heaven. But, well, how do you get into that heaven? Well, you know, and I always try to paint this picture. You're standing there, and there's God. And it's like, can you come into heaven or not, right? And what, how do you perceive that's going to go down? And the most common answer I get is, I think God would let me in. Why? Well, because I'm basically a good person. There it is. I'm basically a good person, meaning I'm not totally a perfect person, but I'm basically good. It's like, I'm not Hitler, so I'll get in. I mean, that's kind of the bar, right? I mean, everyone, no one, I've never met a person that says Hitler will be there. Yeah, sure. Nobody. I mean, he's like the, the Satan incarnate. You know, you cannot get into heaven if you're Hitler, and I am not that. That, that was bad. That's really evil, and I'm not that. And so I just take you to this Revelation 21. I'm going to go back to this, the city, right? Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those who are written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Pastor, how do you get it written in the Lamb's Book of Life? You put your faith in the work of Jesus Christ and what He did on the cross. You say, I need to be saved. There's things about me that are unclean. And God's going to judge those. And so I believe, and I put my faith, that Jesus came to the cross and took my place in that judgment. And all the wrong things I did, he got punished for. And not only that, but he gives to me all of his righteousness. And you read the book of Revelation, it's described like God puts a white robe on you and you look clean. Nothing unclean goes into the city. And then you begin to talk about, have you done anything unclean? Have you done anything unclean? I mean, when you start to look at all the unclean things, because we think of ourselves in ways, if I've done some, but I've done so much more good that you won't even notice this. Yes. Yes. And by the way, you've done a lot more bad than you probably think. Jesus says, if you even hate it in your heart, it's the same as committing murder. Jesus says, if you even looked at a woman like you wanted to have sex with her, that's the same as committing adultery. Have you ever lied? Then you're a liar. I mean, you just start to go down the list. There's a lot of bad there. Unclean, and you can't walk in. And the problem with humanity is humanity is always trying to, to create their way to God. It's always man working from down here trying to get up to God. Some system of morality, some system of religion. I, I'm going to get there one day and look back and look at all the religion that I did. That'll be good to God. But the Bible says God will look at our righteousness as if it's filthy rags. Man is always trying to save himself. Now, do you remember when we went through the Apocalypse sermon and I told you Hollywood's always creating these movies where it's the end of the world, right? And then we looked at there's only one end of the world. The Bible gives it to us. But I didn't mention that in all these Hollywood movies, almost always man finds a way to save himself. It's just in our nature. We believe we can do it. You got a movie about, about the destruction of the earth. And the, the movie 20, 20, 
2012. They create an ark, and people find their way, and they get in it, and then as the big waves come, they save themselves. You got a movie about zombies. They come up with a cure that they can use to cure all of the zombies and save humanity. You got a movie about aliens. There's so many movies about aliens and how we're going to fight the aliens and defeat the aliens. But man can save himself. Then you've got a movie about an asteroid that's going to come and hit and destroy all the... Well, let's just fire nuclear missiles up and we'll blow it up in space. We can save ourselves. You've got a movie about robots that go back in time that destroy humanity. Well, let's just take one of those robots, reprogram it, send it back in time. They can fight each other in our present time. We can save ourselves, and we just have that mentality, don't we? We can save ourselves, and I'm here to tell you that the Bible gives us the real end of the world, and it says we cannot save ourselves. Only in Jesus Christ can we find salvation. Now, there's a little passage here that I haven't read yet in the entire series on heaven. I want to read it. It's called The the Great White Throne Judgment in Revelation 20. John says, Then I saw a great white throne... And him who was seated on it. From his presence, earth and sky fled away. That's a, a mighty powerful presence. And no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the book, in the books according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them, and they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written on the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. Remember, there's only one way to get your book in the name, get your name in the book of life. It's to put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross for you. If you, if you have put your faith in him, your name goes in that book. And there come a time where we open it up and it's like your name is not here. That's how we started the whole series is you must have that reservation secured for you. But that's not the only book. The other book that's opened is a book that details everything you've done. Just in case you could say, wait a minute, that's not fair. Why are you judging me? Well, let's take a look at your life. Ooh, nothing will be hidden. Now, we've talked about another kind of judgment, and I, I put them together on a slide. Our projectors aren't great. <clears throat> we need new projectors, I know. We've, we've ordered some, but it's kind of blurry. But here on the left, we talked about this one. This was the Bema Seat of Christ. This is a, a judgment not of salvation. This is a judging our life work. It's a, I'm testing what you've done. Are you a good steward with everything that I gave you? If you are, you get awards. There's many awards that you could get. Different kinds of crowns is how the Bible uh, describes it. And there's Jesus there, and there's one of the saints, and he's putting a crown on his head, which in that picture is symbolizing he did good. He did good with what God gave him. He's getting a reward. Totally different kind of judgment because that is not a judgment of salvation. But this one over here is to be accountable for what you've done, for the lies, for the murders, for, the, for all that humanity has done. Individually, the sins that you've committed, they get judged here. But over here, you're not judged because the judgment went on to Christ. And you're saved from that judgment. 
You don't even stand over here. The great white throne judgment, as it said, all of the dead throughout all of, of, of past eternity resurrected to give an account, to give an account. You know, I think back about the first murder, Cain and Abel. Well, Cain slew Abel. And do you know what was said? It said the blood of Abel, his brother, cried out from the ground. Built into us is a desire for justice, and that is where justice is met. Every sin ever committed, finally, justice, true justice, the great white throne judgment. Now, I just put another slide up to show you where it is in the timeline, and it's right before we go into eternity. I put this up, um, I think it was last week, where you saw kind of the, this is how we're moving down through history the great white throne judgment is one of the last things before we go into that eternal state. Now, question number eight. <clears throat> what does it mean to be married to Christ? Right? I mean, this question gets asked because I hear you, pastors, sometimes you say, we're the bride of Christ. He's the groom, we're the bride. The church, what does that mean? Because in my humanity, I think of, I know what marriage is here, but what does that mean there? So it's a common question that's asked. I just have a couple thoughts. I don't know if I can explain it in its entirety, but the Bible gets at it a little bit where we can understand it. That God gives us enough so that we can have an idea about what He means. And here's the first. Bride and groom united together forever. This goes back to our sermon on the rapture out of Thessalonians where Paul said, Then we who are alive, who are left, will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And then look what it says. And so we will always be with the Lord. Now, in humanity, when we have a marriage, <clears throat> supposed to, it doesn't always happen, but the bride and groom don't see each other on that wedding day. You know, the bride is getting herself ready. And then the groom comes, and then she comes down, and then there's a, there, there's a, a union. They're brought together, and the two are made one. And the Bible describes marriage that way. The two become one flesh. Now, we have in our church a lot of military, so we, we, we know this, that there's a lot of separation. Military personnel are often deployed to other parts of the world. If you're on a ship, you get sent out to sea for a time, then you come back. There's a lot of separation. It can be hard on families. Now, I wanted to emphasize this. When he appears and we are caught up to be with him, the Bible says we will never be separated from him ever again. For all the rest of eternity. Imagine that as a bride and groom. But that's what he's saying. What does it mean to be married? It's to mean to be brought together, to be one, to be together, and never separated. When we're caught up in, with him in the air, the next thing that happens, marriage, supper of the Lamb. A great feast, just like here on earth when we have a wedding. What follows? A big feast. Same thing in heaven, a big feast. It's called the marriage supper of the Lamb. What else happens? Then after that, we have the beam of seat of Christ, where he's going to say, now that we're united, I want to award you for what a faithful servant you were. And we are together. Then when he comes back to earth, the second advent, we come with him at his appearing. We come down and then we reign with him in his kingdom. We are with him forever. That's part of what it means to be married to Christ. Now, here, let me give you one more. Name change. Just like here. 
When two people are married, there's a name change. Two names come together. Sometimes one, like often in culture, maybe the bride will drop her last name and take on the, the groom's name. Sometimes they hyphenate. But whatever your culture does, it's a name change because two have become one. Now, let me just show you this. Revelation 19. <clears throat> this is when he's coming back. John looked up. He says a rider on a white horse, and he's talking about this rider. But in verse 12, he says, his eyes are like a, a flame of fire, and on his head are many diadems, that's crowns, and he has a name written that no one knows but himself. I find that phenomenal. Think about that. Now, first of all, someone pointed this out to me, you know, it says it's written on him. Does that mean Jesus has a tattoo, so tattoos are good? And I'm not going that far. I'm not going that far. But he does have a name that we don't know. And just think about the names of Jesus. Wonderful, Counselor, Prince of Peace, Mighty God, Savior, Messiah. How many names does he have? And yet there's one yet we don't know. Now look at Revelation 2. He's talking to the church, a particular church. And he's talking about being conquerors, which is like to overcome the sinfulness of the world, to be faithful. And he says to the one who conquers... I will give some of the hidden manna, and I will give him a white stone with a new name written on the stone that no one knows except the one who receives it. Again, I find that amazing. How, this goes back to there's so much about our, our world now that will be in eternity. I just weave that in there. And just think about that. What does name change mean? It means that we belong to each other. A bride and groom now have joined together. My wife's at the gym, and she's a coach, and she's fit. Some guy walks in, doesn't know. She's married, says, Let's check out that woman over there. She looks hot. I can say that I'm married to her. And then someone says, oh, no, she belongs to Pastor Kevin. She's married. Oh. Yeah, see that? We belong to each other. Now, see how I use that example? I didn't use it the other way around. It doesn't happen the other way around. So. But we belong to each other. And there's an aspect of that, that Jesus, a name no one knows yet, and he's going to give to those who conquer a new name. Why? Because we're going to belong to each other and we will never be separated. Now, question number nine. What should we do now? After everything that we have learned through this summer about heaven and everything, what does it mean for you? And I go right to 2 Peter where he says that in his day to the church. So then all these things are thus to be dissolved. He's talking about the apocalypse there. Then he says this, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? Do you see what he's saying? Do you hear all of this magnificent information I'm giving you. Now, what do you do with it? How are you going to live? And that's the, that's the question that we're going to land on at the very end of this series. I have four quick thoughts for you on it. The first is this. If, now that you know this, I'm going to add in. You know how it all ends? You are called to purity. If you are a follower of Christ, if you put your faith in what Jesus Christ did on the cross and your name's written in the book of life, well, what is Christ? Christ is holy. Then you are to be holy. First Peter writes, But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, 
for I am holy. You see that? That's one thing I would say to you. What does it mean? You need to live like you reflect Christ. Look at your life. And I say that because we live in an age right now that they just... we. We don't take sin very seriously. There are aspects of our culture that are taking some sinfulness, and they celebrate it. Let's make a whole day about this sinfulness and celebrate it. We are never to be proud of sin. We, if you are a Christian, we are called to be pure, and we are to look at our lives. If there's any aspect of our life that is sinful, we are to change it. We are called to witness. We are called to witness. In the epistle of Jude, it says, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ, and on some have compassion, making a distinction, but others save with fear, pulling them out of the fire. I love this verse. It's talking about being a witness. Some, on some, have compassion. Make a distinction. That word means that you are reading people. You are looking at people and discerning. And I would ask you this, do you look at people that way? That is a Christian. They don't know Christ. They're lost and they're saved. You make a distinction about the people that are around you. If you're to be a a witness You go to where God sends you, or God sends people into your life, and you make a distinction about them. Be compassionate with some, he says. Sometimes you need to be direct, okay? Sometimes you need to have a slower process of how you're going to witness to them, but make a distinction about them. You should see people in one of those two lights. They're the only kind of people that exist on the planet. All the diversity that exists What really matters is they are either children of God or they are not. They're in the family of God or they're not. They're lost. Make that distinction and it makes a difference in how you're going to approach them and talk to them and be around them. And look what he says. Others save with fear. He's telling you, you need to save them. They are destined for that great white throne and God has put you in their life to be a witness. Why? So you can save them. You can be a tool of God to pull them out of that destiny. You're the tool. You're not the Savior. You let God work in their life. You're just the missionary. You bring a message. You let God work the message inside of them. There's not a pressure for you to get them saved. There's a pressure for you to be a witness. That's it. The tool has to be active, pulling them out of the fire. And by the way, I'll go back to point number one. You're not a very good witness if you have sin in your life. That's why you're called to purity, not just to reflect Christ, but to be a witness for Him. You can't say to people, I'm calling you to be saved in the most holy person in the universe. I believe in Him. I follow Him. And then in your life, you're a hypocrite. You display things in your life that contradict the very thing you want to be a witness about. You're called to purity. You're called to witness. And you're called to fellowship. If you really are a child of God, if you really are a family member, then you spend time with God's family The writer of Hebrews says, and let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You are to have a relationship in such a way that you're bringing something out of your brothers and sisters in Christ. You're stirring them up to love, to do good works, to be better, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together 
as is the manner of some. If you're a Christian, you need to be regularly coming into the fellowship. You cannot be a creaster. You cannot be somebody who only goes on Christmas and Easter, and you got your devotions, and you live like that. You can't. That is anti-Christian. It's not a follower. That says there's something there I want a little bit in my life, but not enough to really change me. That way I'm still the Lord of my own life, and I like being the Lord. I don't want to have to follow the Lord all the way because I have to give up some things. Exhorting one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching. I love how he, the whole context is that Jesus is coming back. The day, capitalized, is Jesus is coming back. Which means between now and when he comes, you need to be part of a fellowship. You can't just come here on Sundays, I'm going to tell you that. The Bible would not shape that in you. The Bible would shape you to be more involved. Get to know the family. Our oldest son just moved out. Finally out of the nest. He's been out a little while, but now he got his own place. He kind of had to help in his first one. He's more on his own now, I guess. Got a job. And he's still part of our family. I want him to come around. You don't live in our house, but we want to see you. We love you. Sometimes I say to mom, cook something really good and then tell him. Maybe he'll show up. You know, because he's part of the family. You're part of the family. We want to see you. We don't just, just go out into the world and we don't. Come back. Fellowship with us. And not just to get a meal, but to serve, right? Because it says you're to be, to be exhorting one another, lifting one another up, stirring up the right things in us. That actually takes me into the last one, which is you're called to ministry. You're called to ministry. Second Timothy says, I charge you therefore before God and the Lord Jesus Christ, who will judge the living and the dead at his appearing and his kingdom. Again, the context is he's coming back. Preach the word. Be ready in season and out of season. Convince, rebuke, exhort with all long suffering and teaching. The great words in there. Great words. He's saying to you, he's giving you options, right? You can be an exhorter. You could be someone who's an accountability partner who maybe rebukes someone when they've got stuff in their life they shouldn't have. Convince, that means you're in discussions about truth, trying to sort out the truth of God's word in people's life. Long-suffering, that means you're somebody who's really patient. Teaching. I don't know what your skill is, but you should be in ministry. True children of God, they come into the fellowship and don't just live off of it. They serve it. I mean, in our house, you know, Josiah's gone, but the other children, it's like, your job is to take the trash out. Your job is everybody here has to contribute to the family, right? Micah, he takes the trash out. That's his job. And the other day I came in and there was like three bags of trash. And it's like, oh yeah, he's off island. That's why. Someone else needs to do his job. Micah is in China right now. In fact, very shortly, he's going to be competing against Hong Kong, representing the Guam national team for his age range. So, and when he comes back, I'll have some trash for him to take out. <laughs> Got to keep him humble. Got to keep him humble. But what I'm saying to you is, what are you, what, what are you doing to contribute to God's church and his family. You are to be ministering. As we're waiting, do you see the context? 
There it is, His appearing, His kingdom. God's context is why we're waiting. You're to be a witness. You're to try to work out purity in your life. You, you need to be part of the fellowship, and you need to be in ministry together. That's how God's church works. Now, we get to the very end. I want to go back to Aslan and Chronicles of Narnia because in that, in that book series, I loved that series growing up, reading it, and then they made some, some of the books into movies. And, but Aslan is the figure of, of Christ and the books. You've got all these characters. They get to the end. They're going into Aslan's land, which is like heaven. And I already told you one quote, which was, it's not that different than the world that we lived in, but it's so much better. And as they're coming into the land, here's one of the first quotes, which was, this is one of the characters, I have come home at last. This is my real country. I belong here. This is the land I have been looking for all my life, though I never knew it till now. Come further up, come further in. And I titled this series, Where You Belong. You get that sense out of that. This is where I really belong. This is the country I've been looking for. There's so much about this world that I like, but it, it doesn't satisfy all the way. There's something always left empty. No matter what's, what it is I like about this world, if I engage myself in it, it can never fully satisfy. That's because God made us for a different world. And the Bible says he's put eternity into our hearts. And I told you in the very first sermon, that's like a compass. A compass is always pointing north. And every time you have a desire that can't be fully met, that is your true north. It's telling you you're not meant for this world. It's pointing you to eternity. You have eternity in your heart. And in the Chronicles of Narnia, one of those characters, they finally get there and they say, I'm finally in my real country, my real home. But the last part there, come further up, come further in. When you read the description that C.S. Lewis of Aslan's land, it just sprawled on and on, and it was beautiful and wonderful. You couldn't see the end of it. And they were saying, you come on, come further in, come further in. And that's that idea that I get, that that new heaven, that new earth, it's just going to be, come on, come further in, come further up, because there's going to be so much there that God has made for us to enjoy, to have dominion over, to build a life in eternity in. Now here's my last quote. And this is Aslan the lion has been speaking. And it reads, and as he spoke, he no longer looked to them like a lion. But the things that began to happen after that were so great and beautiful that I cannot write them. And for us, this the end of all the stories, and we can most truly say that they all lived happily ever after. But for them, it was only the beginning, the beginning of the real story. For all their life in this world and all their adventures in Narnia had only been the cover and the title page. Now at last, they were beginning chapter one of the great story, which no one on earth has read, which goes on forever, in which every chapter is better than the one before. Amen? I mean, that's what we look for. Everything you have ever done in this life is but the title on the first page of the book. And when we go into the next life, every chapter is going to be grand. But every chapter gets better and better and better. 
Father, thank you for this series. As we go through it, you've taught us, you've corrected maybe things we thought, you've informed us, you've given us hope, you've pointed us our true north towards eternity. You've put eternity in our hearts. I pray as we've gone through the series that if we're children of God, not only have we grown in our understanding of our future, but our hope is not misplaced. We're able to set our true north in our hearts and in our lives. I pray here at the end that we could take these challenges into our hearts, that we strive for purity, we take sin seriously, that we think about how are we a witness? Do we make a distinction about the people you put in our lives or you send us to? And are we faithful to the fellowship? And are we involved? Do we serve? We saw even today, Jessica stand up and say, we need help. The church needs its members, its family to be involved. I pray, Lord, that you would raise that up within our church. And Father, we just thank you for the life of Christ, for his sacrifice. We thank you, Father, that as we head into our time of communion, we can remember what he did and we give our heart and soul and words to you in worship right now to take us into that time of communion that our future in heaven, the home that you've gone away to prepare for us, the hope that is secure is because of what he's done. May we give these last moments of our service to you in worship and gratefulness and thankfulness in Christ's name. Amen. Now, I'm going to ask you to stand and we're going to sing this last song, but it's going to take us into our time of communion. I want to tell you as you're singing, you're to be preparing your hearts for communion. We're not going to pass out the elements. During the last song, when you're ready, you come forward and you take one of these little cups and you go back to your seat. And when the song's over, we're going to partake together as a church. Let's sing and worship together.